Welcome to Talking About Cities, the podcast that connects you with leading innovators working to revitalize cities across America. We talk to the thinkers and doers facing the challenges and celebrating the promise of cities today. I'm your host, Carol Coletta, with the Kresge Foundation, and today we are talking about cities with District of Columbia Library Executive Director Richard Reyes Gavilon. It is a library system that is employing some of the world's best architects to build new libraries for the district's booming population and crafting some unusual public-private partnerships along the way. Rich came to the position in 2013 after serving as chief librarian of the Brooklyn Public Library. Rich, you've called libraries engines of human capital, and you've labeled library patrons as creators, not consumers. Explain what you mean. For the latter comment, libraries as as engines of human capital, what libraries have been doing for the past 10, 20 years is really thinking about how we can move citizens to places in their lives where they are either career-ready or school-ready, job-ready, life ready. We've been spending so much more time thinking about how libraries can be much more intentional about helping people get to a place in their lives where they're ready to succeed. And that's a very different sort of philosophical approach to service than libraries have had historically, where we have been much more passive about our role in the lives of communities. Certainly, the importance for us for decades was making sure people had access to information, and that's something that's still critical to our mission. But we're much more thoughtful now about the people who walk into our doors and what they need to be successful in life or just enriched or happy. The other comment about uh, people not just consumers but creators There's a a corollary there to my previous statement, and that is that uh, it used to be that people would come into a library and and would be sort of passive consumers of information through a book or even a website or a DVD. But now patrons or customers are much more active in their experiences in libraries. So that could be something as innovative as using a fabrication lab in which they're actually building something with their hands, Or it could be something uh, maybe not so dramatic, but being active participants in cultural programming or civic participation or discussion or something to that effect. Given you are now trying to serve creators, not consumers, that you are attempting to be an engine of human capital, what does the 21st century branch library look like and what does it represent to its community? The 21st century branch library is a more necessary component to civic life in the city. It is a space in which patrons at all stages of their lives can can come in and access tools in which they might find some level of success. So the, the 21st century library is a space that is much more focused on people and how they use spaces versus buildings that are kind of these repositories for information. So we think a lot, much more about how spaces are used now than we used to when we designed libraries. And in D.C., because we have been so aggressive in the past 10 years with 
our neighborhood library building program, we've gotten to spend a lot of time with architects and other thinkers about, you know, what is the most important use of a 20,000 square foot library facility. And if you walk into our new libraries, you'll see an emphasis on um, spaces in which people can collaborate, spaces in which people can study, flexible spaces in which the library doesn't dictate how the space must be used. Rather, the folks who walk into the door decide how they want to use it. And that involves a whole other component, including making sure that our technology is robust but also flexible, making sure that our programmatic offerings are very responsive to the needs of that specific community. So there's a whole other programmatic component to uh, a successful 21st century library as well. You have had the opportunity to build new buildings and new spaces that are more supportive of flexibility. To what extent, Rich, are your libraries bespoke, that is unique to a community, or are they built to a template? We're not quite built to a template, but we are also not entirely bespoke. When we design a library, there are certain elements that we know are common denominators in terms of the needs of most of our communities. So regardless of whether you are in a wealthy community or a uh, underserved community, we know, for example, that people need spaces in which to congregate. And so while there is a template there, what we try not to dictate and what we try to think very carefully about is the type of programming. And the programming, I would say, then is bespoke versus the spaces themselves. Certainly, we know that certain parts of the city require more technology. We know certain parts of the city demand more books. We know certain parts of the city demand more training. We know certain parts of the city demand more seating. So within that template that I just alluded to, there are a lot of levers that we pull up or down to address the needs of the neighborhood in which the library is placed. And certainly with the renovation or the modernization of our Martin Luther King Jr. Library downtown, we are able, by virtue of the monstrous amount of space, over 400,000 square feet, we can build literally dozens of different types of spaces to accommodate the needs of basically any user that you can imagine, uh, anywhere from a scholar to a baby to a job seeker to a teacher to a parent and every sort of patron profile that you can imagine. You talk about the various patron profiles that you're serving. Can you mix all of those people together happily? Libraries today seem to be carrying the burden of a shrinking social safety net. They've become after-school centers, settlement houses for new immigrants, day shelters for people without permanent shelter. Can libraries successfully be all things to all people and be a place where all of those different kinds of people gather and mix it up? You've just described the amazing sort of sauce that makes public libraries so incredibly popular and wonderful and necessary in the 21st century. The fact is that I can't think of another place in this country, another institution, in which we can have, let's say, a panel discussion where you'll have people from very different walks of life sitting down next to each other. So that sort of heterogeneity is something that you don't see in places that require a membership or a subscription. 
And I think that people who choose to live in cities and D.C.'s population is going to hit 700,000, I I understand, next month. And cities are growing all over the country. So people who are choosing to come back to live in dense areas, I think understand that there is a quiet importance to being around people from different walks of life. I don't want to diminish the challenges of serving, for example, customers without homes, so many of whom have barriers to participation with civic life that include substance abuse and mental health issues. But by and large, our spaces accommodate folks from all these different walks of life, and we do so very successfully. And that's partially based on library design. It's partially based on the library's mission to be open and freely available to all users. But it's also, I think, part of the beauty of living in a city is understanding that you're going to be sort of rubbing shoulders with people who are very different than you. And that's a wonderful opportunity to teach your kids about people who are different than you. It's a wonderful opportunity to uh, basically understand and accept people's differences. It's a little sort of Petri dish life lesson all in one. Do you ever find yourself trying to manage that mixing in a way that doesn't exceed what I'll call a tipping point? I mean, let's be honest. We've seen public places, libraries in particular, that become gathering places for people without shelter who have no other place to go. And that occasionally creates some sort of chaos or situation where people with opportunities to go elsewhere will opt out. And once people start to opt out of visiting the library or thinking of it as their own, then political support begins to decline. Do you find yourself managing against that? I maybe wouldn't phrase it as managing against it, but I absolutely understand the point that you're raising. And certainly, so for example, when I think of the MLK library that we just closed back in March, and then I think of other libraries that have serious issues with customers without homes like San Francisco and maybe a few others, there is a need for the library to be more, and I'll go back to that word intentional, around how do we serve people rather than just acting as a day shelter. So a few years ago, we hired a social worker to be a manager within the library's programs and partnerships department who has been working not only directly with customers without homes around thinking about what are their library needs, you know, what are their programming needs, working with staff to figure out these are people that don't need to be ignored, but they need to be welcomed and they need to be either referred to services in the city that might benefit them or, again, referred to library programming. Um, You know, I am sensitive to the perception of this tipping point to which you refer The other strategy, of course, is make the services of the library so necessary by people across the city that there won't be that overwhelming feeling that this is only for people who don't have shelter because everyone in the city is looking to get these services. I mean, that, frankly, for me, is the preferred strategy. Make the library so popular that you won't even be able to tell who's got a home, who doesn't have a home, who's got a job, who's looking for a job. It's just going to be a place where people want to be. We're talking today with Richard Reyes-Gavillon, Executive Director of the D.C. Public Library. 
To prepare a new vision for the DC library system you lead, you conducted extensive interviews with community members to get their ideas. Did they tell you anything that surprised you? Yes, I'm a new Washingtonian. I've only been here almost four years. But from residents, young and old, from residents who've been here for uh, many generations, as well as from residents who've been here a short time, there seemed to be this common thread that people wanted to learn about the history of Washington, D.C., and they wanted to learn about why is D.C. special, why is D.C. unique. Tell me more about the riots that took place on U Street. Tell me more about what I hear about Chinatown and all the above-ground parking and how it's changed over the years. I think that the relentless sort of gentrification that's taken place in cities like Washington, D.C., makes both gentrifiers, newcomers, as well as residents who've been here for many years, sensitive to the fact that there is an incredible history that needs to be respected and learned about for people to feel as though they are part of the city and the part of the growing city. So I was very surprised to hear that everywhere we went, that people wanted more local history programming. People wanted us to figure out ways in which we could take our special collections and sort of amplify those to make them a bit more visible for residents. And so there's a whole component to our strategic plan around local history and culture. And prior to the planning for the strategic plan, I would not have guessed that that would have bubbled up the way it did. You just completed a branch library with sexy new condos on top. Explain the deal and how the library benefits. Well, I mean, I think that more than anything, the city benefits from what you're describing, which was the first public-private partnership involving a library in Washington, D.C. This is another model that's being implemented successfully around the country. And what it ultimately means is that the city received a spectacular 20,000-square-foot library on 23rd and L Street at next to no cost for, for taxpayers. And the space is stunning. It's all on one floor. We've got all the hallmarks of the public library program in the city with flexible meeting spaces and sort of uh, you know ubiquitous technology and separate entrance for our meeting room for after hours use of our meeting spaces. And what I'm hoping this will do is encourage uh, not city leaders who I know are well behind this idea, but residents who are sometimes a little bit reluctant to commingle public libraries with private enterprise. I'm hoping that they will see this as an example of something that we can do perhaps in other growing parts of the city in which we might have a library that's in need of renovation or perhaps in a neighborhood that might be considered somewhat of a library desert right now where we would consider expanding our footprint. So it's a wonderful model, and I'm so happy that after years of planning and construction and lawsuits that the space is finally open and being enjoyed by uh, you know, many hundreds of residents every single day. That prompts two questions. What would be the reluctance of residents to have a library on the first floor of their building? I mean, that sounds glorious to me. No one has a problem with a library in any way, shape, or form. What you experience, and I've experienced this in New York as well as here, is that you've got some residents who are just philosophically opposed to the idea of public-private partnerships. 
the argument is that the public never wins in a scenario where we are negotiating with private enterprise. I don't subscribe to that belief. I think that cities are very astute and the city leaders can negotiate great deals. And I think it's a win-win, especially in a city like Washington, D.C., where we are unable to grow very high, that we've got to think about maximizing at least some of the air rights above our buildings, especially in the sort of dense downtown areas like Foggy Bottom, where our West End library is. So no one is opposed to uh, a library. And when you walk into that West End library, everyone feels that sense of awe. But some small folks do not love the arrangement. Is the West End Library being used differently than other libraries? I'm sure a lot of people just want to come in and see it, but are residents and others using it differently? Well, you know, I'll I'll be honest with you, Carol, it's a little early because it just opened last month. But I would be shocked, frankly, if this library would be used differently than any of our other downtown libraries. The Western Library is in a very dense, mixed community. You've got George Washington University there. You've got a very literate community there. You've also got uh, challenges with customers without homes who congregate in that part of the city. So, you know, that library is going to succeed the way our other libraries have succeeded, catering to a wildly diverse group of users. There's a very strong advocacy group for that library. You're probably familiar with this concept of library friends groups. It's a very active friends group, a very politically engaged friends group. So I know what we'll see there are a tremendous number of really great sort of civic uses of that space, whether it's uh, local uh, book groups or organizations like the uh, ANCs or the Advisory Neighborhood Commissions getting together to talk about issues affecting the Foggy Bottom neighborhood. It is going to be a, uh, a really wonderful civic space. Rich, when you go before local political decision makers, what case do you make for libraries? What sells? I mean, you know, really what sells, and I can articulate it, but I love to visit a library with the mayor or a council member and just have them just kind of soak in the level of activity taking place in any one of our libraries at any one time. So in in one way, the best thing I can tell our, our local elected officials is the number of people who are walking into our libraries every single day. So in D.C., it's roughly about 4 million people per year are coming into our, well, right now it's about our 25 or 24 locations. And that's a wonderful number, especially when you can actually visualize it. And then you talk about, you know, how the library is becoming this kind of ubiquitous 24-hour, seven-day-a-week institution. And I talk about how not only do we have these wonderful physical community education anchors, but we've got increasingly residents making use of the library. Even if they're not coming into a library, they've got access to so much of our rich electronic content, e-books and streaming video and streaming audio, and the ability for them to move actual physical books around the system to get a book from another part of town to where they can pick it up conveniently So the library is really becoming just part of the fabric of everyone's lives. And while that's my goal, at least, is to get to a point where every district resident is an active library user, regardless of whether or not they actually come into our physical spaces. 
So, you know, this is the picture that I try to paint for our local elected officials that, you know, investment in libraries is just such an incredible for really for not a whole heck of a lot of money, you are making vast improvements to public life in your city. It's the one sort of common denominator when you speak to people in any neighborhood in the city. They'll say, you know, what do they love about their city? And they'll say they love their, their public library. And especially in D.C. where we've got these just beautiful architectural marvels that provide such inspiration to all. And, you know, it's you'd be hard-pressed to be a, a sensible politician and not say, I want more of that or at least I want you to keep it up, you know? What is the biggest challenge you've faced as head of the D.C. library system? This concept that we, I think, talked about a little bit earlier, being all things to all people, is always going to be a challenge. The fact that our libraries are roughly 20,000 square feet, by the time you take out a lot of the mechanical areas, we might be talking 15,000 square feet. The popularity of some of these spaces can be a challenge. You walk to the library in Shaw, for example, and you are overrun with nannies and preschoolers. At the same time, you've got you know an overwhelming number of adults using technology, and the space can feel crowded. So, you know, how do we tailor our spaces to meet the needs of everyone? And at the same time, how do we focus our energies to become sort of better stewards of our spaces and our services? So this is an ongoing conversation that I have with the library's board of trustees. Certainly, there are also challenges around figuring out what's next for libraries. You know, I think that there is now this expectation that libraries will continue to innovate. Okay, you've introduced um, emerging technologies. What next? What are you going to do next? And then maybe finally is making sure that we're mindful and respectful of the needs of people who love libraries for everything that they offered to them as when they were younger. I go out and speak to communities all the time, and especially when we're redesigning new libraries, and they say, you know, it's still important for me to have a sacred space in which I have a wonderful collection of print books. So we have to be mindful of the fact that in some circles, while there is a great desire for libraries to be innovative and experimental and push the envelope in terms of design, that we've got a wide swath of users who love libraries for everything that they've represented for hundreds of years. Is quiet part of that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, we hear that everywhere we go. It's like, look, okay, you, we understand that you, know, you want to serve the needs of kids after school in ways that can engage them and further what they're learning in class but I still want a place where I can read in solitude because one of the things that you also want in cities that are very dense and very noisy is a space where you can reflect and a space where you can just be in collecting your own thoughts in that sort of almost, I, I use the word sacred uh, quite a bit. You do want that almost church-like atmosphere. And uh, one of the beauties of modernizing a space like the MLK Library, again, is that not only can you address the needs of a variety of patron profiles, but you can also create these spaces that can accommodate a tremendous amount of noise, but also the need for um, for sort of pin drop quiet. And so, you know, there's going to be a space for everyone in that building. 
It's very exciting to see libraries change and your leadership is clearly making a mark not only in DC, but in inspiring library leaders everywhere. Thanks, Rich, for what you are doing and thanks for being our guest on Talking About Cities. This was great. Thank you so much for having me. Richard Reyes-Gavalon is Executive Director, DC Public Library. Thanks for listening. You can always hear the latest Talking About Cities podcast and find an archive of past shows at kresge.org. You'll also find links to learn more about our guest. Contact us at talkingaboutcities at kresge.org with your comments and suggestions. I'd love to hear from you. I'm your host, Carol Galletta, Senior Fellow with the Kresge Foundation American Cities Practice. And until next time, let's keep talking about cities.